Well, hello, Harvest Community Church. First time visitors, I want to introduce myself. My name is Mike. That's all you get for now. We can talk personally later, but everybody, uh, last week we had a men's retreat, so many of the men, not all, were away, and it was awesome. So here's your homework. If you know a man who went on the men's retreat, ask him to tell you his story, and you can tell him how long you want him to talk. They were all trained, all of us were trained to tell our story in one minute, two minutes, five minutes, or as long as you want. So ask him to tell the story. It was a terrific retreat. God blessed. But I also saw you had my friend Vincent Jeremiah. I always put his M first before. It's not Jeremiah. It's Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Whatever. Vincent, the Italian guy. And I got to hear him Sunday night. So we appreciate him coming and preaching for us. Today we're in Mark chapter 2. We're going right through the book of Mark. We're in chapter 2, verse 18 to 22. So if you'd open your Bibles, whether they're made out of paper or electronic, Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Little bitty story here. Mark 2, 18, with a big punch. It's a little story, big punch. At least I think it's a big punch. Chapter 2, verse 18 to 22. Now, John's disciples, this isn't the guy who wrote the Gospel of John. This is John the baptizer, right? The crazy guy in the wilderness uh, who ate bugs and dipped people in the stream. John's disciples and the Pharisees, those are the priests, they were disciples, were fasting, which means not eating, for those who don't know. And people came and said to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. So you had John's disciples were going without eating so they could pray. The Pharisees' disciples were going without eating without, so they could pray. But Jesus' disciples were apparently making their way to the banquet table on a regular basis. Which would you rather be? Jesus said to them, that's why I follow Jesus right there. Jesus said to them, here's his answer. And it's, it's more profound uh, as the years go by than it was, I think, in the moment. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests, guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can't fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. <laughs> Today, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on any garment. We just throw it away and buy a new one. But in the day when your clothes were very valuable and hard to come by, you wanted to repair them. So no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it and, and the new from the old and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Probably there's probably no one who's putting wine in wineskins anyway. We're getting it out of a bottle. But if you did put it in a skin, you, back like they did back then, you wouldn't put new wine in an already used old skin. Why? If it does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. I want to make one, two, three, four, five quick observations about the text. Get to what I think is the main thrust of the meaning, and then we'll be done. Ready? Five quick observations. One, fasting is a longing 
and a begging and a crying out for the closeness of God with repentance as a key element. For those who don't know what fasting is, and why would you? People don't fast much anymore. The idea is you fast because you're longing for God. You want God. And you can do it anytime you want. Now, the Jews, by law, only had to fast one day a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It just passed. So people who are very observant Jews all over the world took a day and didn't eat. And they sought God. And it's associated with repentance almost always. You don't just long for God. You also search your heart for your sin. You lay it down before him because you want him to be close. You don't want anything. And remember, sin is the thing that comes between us and God. God loves everyone in the world. How come everyone in the world is not God's friend? Hmm. Because we have sin in between us. So when you fast, you want to repent. Now the Pharisees who were the priests of the Jews, since they were extra holy, and if you wanted to follow them, you'd be extra holy, they fasted two days every single week, not in a row, but two days a week, because they were very holy. We don't know how often John the Baptist's um, followers fasted, but since his entire message was repent, I imagine they did it regularly. Second observation, Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. We don't use that term now. We say groom. It's the same thing. Is that a metaphor, or is it reality? Or is it both? His answer to them is, look, by the way, in their day, in their time, they would have week of of feasting, which shows you how important the letter E is. You can go through a miserable week of fasting if you don't have the letter E. Um, (laughs) You put that E in there, it's feasting. Now, that's how you do a wedding, a week of feasting. Oh, and yeah, at some point there's a ceremony. (laughs) This is my kind of wedding. Um, so you have a week of feasting. And so if the groom, you, you, he's, if you're his attendant, you're there to rejoice with him. You're not going to say, well, I can't eat at the feast because I'm fasting right now. So Jesus' point is the reason they're not fasting is you wouldn't ask the attendants of a groom to fast. But this, if you're sitting there listening to that at the time, you might think, what's he talking about? He's not a groom. He doesn't even have a girlfriend. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a rabbi of some kind. He's a teacher of some kind, but he's, he's not even ordained. Um, so what is he talking about a groom? Is this, is this just a metaphor? It, it, it is a metaphor, but it's a metaphor of something. Jesus is saying he is the groom in this metaphor. Well, it turns out... <laughs> that later the church will learn that Jesus is the groom. That in Ephesians 5, we learn that the reason marriage was instituted by God is so we would understand the love of God for mankind. That the Son of God came to be the groom, to love the church like a bride. Beautiful picture here is, is <laughs> if Jesus is saying, I'm the groom. No, back up. Look, look at the context. These people are saying, well, John's people fast, so why? So they can get closer to God. And the Pharisees' people fast, why? So they can get closer to God. Your disciples fast so they can get closer to who? Jesus. They don't have to fast. Why not? Because I'm here. He's saying he's God. Now, we're going to pick that up because we have distance and time to think about it. But his impression is, my people don't fast because people fast if they want God to feel close to them. I'm right here. They don't have to fast. It's really a remarkable thing to say. Um, 
And, and, and also, the Bible is going to say all the way in the book of Revelation at the end, when Jesus comes back, all those who love him are called his bride, being prepared for a wedding ceremony. He is the groom. It's a beautiful picture that, oh, never forget the motivation for God to you is love. It's affection. It's a desire. What motivates God to do anything towards mankind? It's not his desire to condemn us, though he rightfully can. It's love. It's love. So there, it is not just a metaphor. It's actually a truth, but it's also a metaphor. Number three observation. There's a future prophecy in here. Whether the guys listening realize it or not, the guys who aren't fasting, <laughs> they, I don't know if they caught this, but Jesus gave them a future prophecy. He said, he said uh, the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away, then they're going to fast. And I don't think he means then they won't eat. I think he's talking about the cross. <laughs> and, the, and fasting is, is associated with repentance and sorrow. These guys are happy now. It's feast time. Here I am. I do tricks with fish and bread. I walk on water. I heal folks. No one can mess with me. It's great to be around me. You get a warm feeling in your chest when I'm here. Everything's good. But there's going to be sorrow. And there would be sorrow. The night he was betrayed and arrested, his boys took off. They ran for the hills, lest association with him get them killed. And then they didn't realize he was going to rise from the dead, even though he told them. So they were scared to death. The day is coming when sorrow is going to come upon these people. The cross, as we go through Mark, you're going to see that the cross is, is, is like foreshadowed throughout the book. Jesus is very recognized I was going to use the word cognizant. <laughs> um, he, he, he's very uh, aware of the importance of the end of his three-year ministry. He, he, he understands the necessity of his own death. If Jesus comes to the earth and teaches a lot of people a lot of things and preaches a lot of things and heals a lot of people, does everything just the same, and then zips out before the cross. You could have a lot of good Christian religion. You could still do a lot of cool things with stained glass and cathedrals, and you could just teach, 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 and trust me, the world would like that Jesus. But a Jesus who says, I come because I came to die for the sins of the world, indicts everyone in the world is guilty of sin, and the world does not like that. But Jesus knows if I don't do that, there'll be no bride to love. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. If I don't die, then the groom has no bride because no one will escape the punishment of hell. So, number four, on the, he, he foreshadows that when he says the, the groom is gonna be taken away. Four, the, que- the fourth observation, the question that was asked of Jesus implied that he wasn't doing religion right. You're not, you're doing it wrong. One of my favorite sayings throughout life, whenever anyone says that, I always laugh. You're doing it wrong, Jesus. How can your religion be true? You simpleton Galilean man who also seems to be very impressive. The Pharisees, or doing religion the right way. You fast a couple times a week and you seek God. The, John, at least, looks like he understands how religion works. You, you fast and you get close to God. You're not even doing it. 
they were really saying, how could your religion be true? Because you're not doing it right. By right, put yourself in their sandals. By right, they meant you're not doing the normal religious things that mark you as a religion. Um, see, we, we all do religious things, right? <laughs> um, uh, and, and, and you systematize them. Now, you could do that just because you're very superstitious and, you know, you play baseball and you always wear the same dirty shirt. You always eat the same thing right before the meal. And, but you systematize your religious things that you're going to think work in the spiritual realm. But religions themselves are no different than a superstitious baseball player. They are people thinking, if we do this, it's going to get us closer to God, so let's keep doing this. And then they said, well, let's add this. Well, let's add this. And let's add this. And before you know it, you get a bunch of rules. And someone goes, well, that ought to do. And then we have a religion. It's a a systematized set of behaviors. Jesus is not fitting in the rules we see here. And as we go through Mark, you'll see this theme comes up again and again. In fact, he's putting a strain on their religious system. He's not doing it right. So Jesus presented two parables. He'd already answered the question, by the way, why don't your people fast? They probably wouldn't understand the answer, but that's their problem, right? How come you guys don't fast? Well, you wouldn't ask guests at a wedding feast to fast, would you? No? Okay, there's your answer. You're like, should we ask him again? (laughs) But then he adds two parables that have nothing to do with that. They're looking at a bigger issue. They're looking at the issue of the fact that he's doesn't fit in their religious system. And those two parables, one, they're both simple. One is you got a, a garment. If I get a hole in my shirt, it's not a big deal. Get another one. But in those days, a shirt was something you wanted to keep. Maybe you only have two. It was hard to come by cloth. They didn't have uh, textile mills and the way we can spin cloth or make it synthetically. So you had to take care of your clothes and you had to put a patch on it. And he says, if you take an unshrunk patch and put it on there, next time you wash it, it's going to make a bigger hole. If you, if you take wine, you pour it in the skin, it's fresh and it, it continues to ferment in there and it, it, it expands, pops the seams a bit, but it works and you drink the wine, you put more new wine, it's going to blow it up. Those are his two simple parables. Parables they would have understood, though they may not have understood the meaning. They probably didn't understand the meaning. But God's, that's the way Jesus was, by the way. Don't, don't let that throw you off. All through the Gospels uh, in the Bible, you'll see Jesus giving truths that people don't understand. He lays it down, they don't pick it up. But it's, it's time-loaded. You'll get it when you need to get it. You'll get it when the Holy Spirit says you get it. And this is one of those things. They understood, yeah, you don't, you, of course, you know, there's probably ladies hitting each other. See, probably, probably a mom hitting her lazy daughter. I told you you should shrink that, you know. <laughs> Some dad hitting his son. That's why you wasted all our wine, son. <laughs> like, see, he knows what he's talking about. What's common to both of those? In both parables... The new thing destroys the old thing. That's what's common. The new thing is destroying the old thing. And so, 
He's saying, my religion doesn't seem to fit into your system, does it? You know what my religion is like? And then he gives those two parables. This leads to a logical question. Does Jesus destroy religious practice? This is in our map. Does Jesus destroy religious practice? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> if you're going to follow Jesus, he will destroy the religious system you've been relying on up to this point. Even if it's a Christian or Jewish based. What do I mean? Religion's powerful. And I'm not talking about the power of God either. You can take God out of religion and religion is still powerful. Because people desire to be right with with whatever's in the metaphysical realm. And you can't get that desire out of people. It's in them. It's born in them. You could try to train it out of them, and they'll still run back to it. They're made to seek the metaphysical. And if you can say, well, my religion will get you there, you have power over those people. Look at those crazy Scientologists. They're nuts. I mean, you join that religion, somehow you get to whatever the metaphysical physical is if you'll wax Tom Cruise's car. I mean, right? Is that crazy? Power comes with it. It it, it promises a path to reach God. And each religion has its rules to measure success without exception. Whether it's Buddhism, now, Americans, we're, we're, we, we're consumers, so we'll steal from this one and steal from that one and steal from that one. Well, I was really into the Dalai Lama last year, and I learned some things. Oh, good for you. you know, I have a picture of Oprah. Oh. Whatever. Whatever. You still end up with rules. And what I'm saying to you is that what Jesus is saying is that if you take Jesus, the real Jesus, he's going to blow your rules apart. He's going to destroy them, both as an organized religious system or as an individual. You might say, even Christian religious systems? (laughs) Absolutely. Before I became a Christian, I was a Catholic. Now, some say, well, Catholics are Christians. Well, they can be. Just like a Baptist can be, and a Lutheran can be, and a Methodist can be. But my identity was in the system. I didn't know Jesus. And when Jesus came, he blew the system up. (laughs) The system didn't work anymore. I meet people, as a pastor, I try to hold that close to the vest for a while. Because then they go put on their religious side. (laughs) You know, I, I want them to be who they really are instead of showing me that side. But... I can't tell you how many times I'll, I'll say to someone, hey, are you, are you a Christian? Or do you, or do you go to church or something like that? Because they're discovering I'm a pastor and, and I want to meet a fellow tribe member, another Christian. And they'll say something like this. Oh yeah, I'm a Lutheran. They'll tell me where they go to church or the name of their system. Nothing against Lutheranism. Luther himself is probably rolling in his grave to see what's happened to his denomination because he just said to the religious system, we ain't doing it right. Why? Because he met Jesus and boom, he blew the world apart with the Reformation. But people will say, I'm a, I'm a Catholic. I'm a this, I'm a that. When you, here's what I learned though. Once I became, a, once I met Jesus, and you might be saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm on the side that doesn't, 
I never met Jesus, but I am a Christian because I'm a Lutheran or I'm a whatever. Trust me, there's a better life for you. If you're depending on the system, you haven't met him yet. But once you meet him, that secondary brand comes out later. You're just excited to meet another person in the tribe. You say, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a brother too. Where do you go to church? Oh, I go to this evangelical Lutheran church. They'll tell you that later, right? I'm a believer too. Why? Because Jesus will blow apart whatever religion you carry in. Now, let's go back to our text. Jesus presents himself as the new wine that would destroy the religious system of the Jews. Within the parable, he is saying, look, the way you people fast, you ain't going to be able to handle, you can't handle the truth, he's telling me. He's like, <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. Jesus, Christianity is, in its right form, proper Judaism. It's all it is is Jewishness. Jewishness with the Messiah. But when the Messiah comes, he blows the old forms apart. Why? Because everything that a Jew would define as Jewish religion was meant to be a form or a shadow or an echo of the true thing. When the true thing got here, you didn't need the echoes. What do I mean by that? Well, the apostles, after Jesus went into heaven, they set up the new church. And you can read about it in the Bible, in in the book of Acts. And that new church differed greatly from the Jewish religious system that they grew up in. They're not outsiders, they're Jews. The apostles are Jews. How did it differ? One, no dietary restrictions. Zero, zip. Jesus says in Mark 7, which we'll get to, not today, but I'm going to read it to you. Then he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? You can't eat sin, he means. Some people's cooking, you think you're eating sin, you're not, it's just bad food. (laughs) It's not sin, it's not sin. Since it, it doesn't enter his heart, but his stomach. It doesn't go into your soul. You can't stain your soul with food. And it's expelled. And here Mark says, thus he declared all foods clean. Well, what's that going to do to the Jews? This is a Jew saying it. These are Jewish followers setting up a system that blows up the old system. They're pretty, you know, they're very serious about bacon and shrimp. And if you wrap a shrimp in a bacon, (laughs) whoa, are you bad? Now, Jesus is not saying you must eat all foods. He's saying you're free to eat all foods in his religion. Religious holidays, no religious holidays required. Now, some have gotten weird, uh, like the Jehovah Witnesses and some, some weird strains of the Church of Christ who says you may not have uh, holidays. That's stupid. But he says they're not required. Well, Jews are pretty much into those holidays. They run their whole calendar by it. It keeps their priesthood in work. Paul writes in Colossians, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink, there's the food again, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or even a Sabbath. 
These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He says, don't you realize Passover, you don't have to celebrate Passover. It was always to show you. You know, when, 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 the, when the high priest would go into the temple with an with a innocent firstborn male lamb and offer it for the sins of the nation, that was a shadow of Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, who was offered on the cross. When you have the real thing, you don't want the shadow. I love steak. All good people love steak. If you don't love steak, there's a flaw in your character. I'm sorry, I still love you. <laughs> Medium rare. <laughs> Ribeye first, porterhouse next, T-bone third. But you get me a big ribeye that's way too big for one meal and I'm excited about it. But if the, if the waiter holds it up and says, look at the light. Look at that. Well, the shadow of this is hitting right on your placemat. Have that. I'd be like, well, can I have the real thing? <laughs> or if he put the plate in front of me and I said, listen, I'm going to set the steak aside. I just want to have the shadow. You'd say, you're stupid. You're crazy. What's wrong with you? These are a shadow of the things to come. The substance is Christ. Do you want to do religious festivals? Well, you can, but they're shadows. Wouldn't you like the real thing? The Bible's not saying you must not celebrate Jewish holidays. He doesn't say you can't make them up. Every couple of years, someone wants to inform me, sometimes by letter, sometimes face-to-face, or by email, at just how wicked it is that we're doing Christmas with a tree on the 25th. Because Jesus wasn't born on the 25th. By the way, I don't know when he was born, so how do you? But okay. And trees are pagan or whatever. God made trees, but whatever. My answer is, I can celebrate Jesus' birthday if I want to. Nanny, nanny, boo-boo. That's my theological answer. (laughs) You can use that. So he's not saying you must not celebrate Jewish holidays. He's not saying you can't even make up holidays. He's saying you're free not to, if you like. No temple or all that went with it is required. This would be a blow that the Jews could not handle. Um, The the temple is the center of the Jewish world. It's it's where, if you were to go to Israel today, it's gone. There's a mosque and another big Arab thing on there called the Dome of the Rock. And the Jews who are left go to the weeping wall, the mourning wall, the wailing wall, to mourn because all that's left is a foundation wall. And they can't wait for the day when the temple's rebuilt and they can begin the sacrifice again. And Jesus does away with the need for the temple. You do not need a temple to meet with God if God inhabits every human who loves him as if they are his home. And this is good Christian theology taken from John chapter 4. Our father, says the Samaritan woman, worshiped on this mountain, but you that are in Jerusalem, you say that's the place where you ought to worship. She means the temple. Jesus said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem at the temple, he means, are you going to worship God? The hour's coming, you ain't got to go there. 
Why? The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. God is spirit. In other words, I'm the temple now. You're the temple if you know Jesus. And in Hebrews 10, 18, where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer an offering for sin. Do you realize if there's no offerings for sin, read the the law of Moses. It's filled with offerings throughout the year. You don't have to do any of them anymore. Well, who's out of a job? Lots and thousands of priests. Because it took thousands of priests to do thousands of offerings. You're not needed anymore. The high priest, you won't need those robes anymore. We don't need any of you priests anymore. Well, of course they're going to be threatened by Jesus. Add to that then, no system of ethnic priesthood required. God said, look, if you're a son of of Levi and a son of Aaron, you're going to be in the priesthood. You can't be in the priesthood if you're not one of those. Well, now it's gone. It's been superseded. Because Jesus is not from that priesthood. He has his own heavenly priesthood. And when he comes, he makes everyone a priest. What's a priest? Don't think color and all that business. A priest in any religion is the person who goes between God and human to connect them. You don't need that whole thing because now every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Therefore, every Christian can connect them. Here's what the Bible says in 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen race. That's Christians, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people of his own possession that you may exclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This ended the entire Levitical priesthood structure. Bam! (laughs) This is like going to the Vatican and saying, we ain't gonna be needing no bishops no more. Pope, give up the hat. I'm not being disrespectful. It's just as radical. Gold, sell it. We ain't going to need that anymore. Just don't need this whole Vatican outfit. Some of you might catch on. Are you saying, is that probably an old wineskin? You bet it's an old wineskin. No government of the nation is required. The Jewish system was customized for a people who occupied a specific land governed by their God. They expected, we run Israel with our prophets, our priests, and our king when we have one. The Romans are here. Our Messiah is going to come, and he's going to set us back up the way we're supposed to be because our religion is set to match one singular nation only with a geographical boundary, and we're supposed to practice it right here. That's it. You want this, this faith? You come to us. Jesus was standing before Pilate right before his death and he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants have been, would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. By that he means Jewish leaders because he's a Jew. But my kingdom's not of this world. The religion of the apostles freed us up or freed up Jews from the function of, of, of doing religion within a singular nation. You may not have thought of all that, but as you think of it, with your sandals on, going back 2,000 years, can you see why the Jews, not only at this point in the scripture, but after the resurrection, saw Jesus and those who followed him as a threat? 
a threat to their way of life? And he was, but he's not just a threat to them. He's a threat to you. If you're not a Jesus follower, he will blow up whatever you do for religion. You might say, well, I do a Christian variety. If you haven't met him yet, he's going to blow it up because it's not working. The, the Pharisees weren't bad people. They were following the right religion. It was God's religion that they were doing. But when God stood in front of them, they couldn't see him. Right? The same happens for Christians, so-called. You just go to a church. You don't meet God. You're in the right religion. He'll blow it up. But he'll blow up Hinduism. He'll blow up communism because that's a religious system of atheism. Jesus really is a threat to every power structure in the world. You put this wine in that skin, I'm going to destroy it. Well, with all that was taken away from the Jews' religious system, you might ask, what's left? What makes up the religious system of Jesus' followers then, according to the Bible, because the Bible's our rule? Answer, in our map, our religious systems should contain simple essentials plus the freedom to do whatever makes reasonable cultural sense. Our religious systems, the way we do Jesus, the way we do religion, should have some simple essentials that we can find in the Bible, but the freedom to do whatever makes reasonable sense. This idea is the guiding principle behind the decisions we make at Harvest as leaders. I'm going to outline the essentials in a second. It won't take long, because there's not many. And they're to be done in a way that makes cultural sense. Okay, you ready for this? Here's the essentials. The first Christians were devoted to meeting together, to prayer, to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and to fellowship. That's a line right out of the Bible. Now, we should meet together for prayer. We should meet together first. We should have prayer. We should have the apostles' teaching, which is what? Which is what? The Bible. No apostles here today. The breaking of bread, which can be meals. Maybe you're having those at your community group. Some shindig at your campus. And a fellowship. Now, there's more, because the Bible has more than that sentence. You need right teaching from the Bible. You need good doctrine. If you didn't have leaders who understand the major doctrines of the Bible and hold to them, they will not lead you the right direction. Good doctrine leads to good practice. Bad doctrine leads to bad practice. So you need the teaching of the Bible. Next, you need to emphasize the health of the church. It's in our vision statement. We exist to increase the health and size of God's church everywhere. That is a very serious vision statement. Think about it. Every book of the Bible is written for the same purpose. There's the history of the first five books of the New Testament. But if you look at that New Testament, why did they write it? Why was Romans written? 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Philippians, Hebrews, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, James. Even the book of Revelation begins with letters to seven churches. Every one of those letters, which constitutes your New Testament, was written so that the local church that read them would be healthier. So we must look at the health of the community must emphasize it. Not the community out there, the community of the church. 
There should be preaching, praying, praise, a community based on love. By this, all men will know your, boy, if that one isn't the most lost. Or you can have a great religious Christian system and nobody loves each other. They don't even know each other's names. You just go to church once in a while, stare at the back of a head, eat a wafer and get the heck out of there. Jesus said, they'll know you Christians by my love. And you have to have biblical leadership. Some people say, well, three ladies in a coffee shop is a church. No, it isn't. There's only two ordinances. You may like a lot of religious stuff, a lot of religious ceremonies. Jesus didn't give you much to work with. He said, well, let's do baptism, which happens once in the life of a believer. It should, when you become one. I got baptized as a baby, but that was against my will. <laughs> it was. When I turned out to be like four or five years old, I was a rabid sinner. And if you'd have given me the choice, I'd have said, no. <laughs> but I also did it within my will later on. See, you don't have to do that every, every week. Well, let's get baptized again. Just one shot, boom, that'll hold you. And then the Lord's Supper, which is you eat bread and drink wine to remember the cross. How often? The Bible doesn't even say how often. Oh, there's religious people who will tell you how often. If you don't do that every time you meet, then God doesn't show up. <laughs> or if you do that every time you meet, you're being too cavalier. Or if you let someone serve it who's not a deacon, then the devil's going to blow your face off, you know? <laughs> right? If you, if you got church history, you know I ain't making this stuff up. People will get weird about it. We always do it in plastic cups. Must be in little plastic cups. No dipping. And that's it. And finally, every person matters. In other words, every person has a part to play in the community to build the body of Christ. That, to put as plainly as possible, you should be seeking to build up another person. If that's not part of your Christian experience, you're doing it wrong. I told you I love that saying. <laughs> the end result of the apostles' teaching, this should also be in our map, the end result of the apostles' teaching and example was a religious system that was lean and mobile, portable. You could take it with you. Think about it. Un think about the broad span of, of the history of mankind. There's never been religion like the one Jesus invented in the first century. It, it required zero buildings. No buildings needed. No temple needed. No formal priesthood needed. No statues needed, no holy implements, no ornaments, no special rites, no sacrifices, no costumes, no special clothing for priests or others, no smoke, no incense, no pictures, nothing. It required things that everyone has access to. People, food, love, prayer, and water. In other words, it's easy to take Christianity on the road. Try taking Buddhism on the road. <laughs> it's hard to get all those little prayer things and the flags of prayer, and you got, you got to have statues. You know? <laughs> Hinduism doesn't travel well. Islam, got to have the mosque. You got to make a pilgrimage to Mecca, throw rocks at the devil. And chicks, ladies, <laughs> I talk like, I know, I talk like a 70s druggie because I was one once. Sorry. Women, I don't mean it as negative, but I think it'd be taken that way. Women, trust me, you don't want the Islamic clothing code. But in Christ, you don't need a clothing code. 
Tell that to the Amish. They don't need a clothes. The Amish, I like the Amish. Nice folks. They don't have to dress like that. They don't have to dress like that. Why do they? They've created a system that has become a wineskin that needs to break. No praying in front of a wall, waiting for a temple. It's unnecessary. No, no statue of Mary needed, or Jesus, or the apostles. No need for prayer shrines, prayer flags, icons, pictures of saints. Uh, what else? Headdresses. No paint. You don't have to put dots or any kind of paint on your face. No special haircut. No holy water. No need to abstain from or gain special foods. A Christian church can become, though, I hate to say it, you might be thinking I'm talking about other religions, and this applies to other religions, but it applies, unfortunately, throughout history to Christian denominations and Christian churches, Christian congregations. Christian church can become an old wineskin. Some of you have seen it, have you not? In other words, the Christians can produce a system, a way of doing their religion that resists change until it resists Jesus himself, until it dies. This country is littered with church buildings. Pennsylvania is littered with church buildings, which this weekend maybe have 12 people in them, maybe 20, and they've been struggling like that for 15 years back when they had a big church of 50 people, but they can remember 50 years ago when they had 100 people, good old days. Why won't they? Then you got some guy goes and plants a church with with 10 people, and boom, tomorrow they have 300. Why? Because you built a wineskin. You built a religious system that became more important than the Jesus you claim to serve. And I'm talking about good, born-again Christian folks do it. Why can't you change? (laughs) Churches where, trust me, they're everywhere. I'm not speaking without knowledge, all right? Someone tell LeBron James that I got educated on this before I spoke. A little cultural humor. If you don't get it, don't worry about it. I know, I know the churches. I know the studies. I've been in the churches. You've seen them. Let's call a new pastor or grow us. Are you willing to change? Oh, we're willing to change. Okay, well, we need to get rid of these pews so we can use this room for something else. Come on. People who say they love the Lord would put a chair over ministry. We always, we always do Good Friday like this. And so your church is going to die. Because your religion became more important to you than your Christ. I'm talking about evangelical Protestants. How do you know when a religious system becomes an old wineskin? I've made a list. You could add to my list. I'm not the only one with insight on this. That's what I've observed. When it adds practices that must be repeated for worship to be proper. If you don't sing the doxology after you take up the offering, this is very common. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Then you're not doing it right. 
When tradition becomes more important than the simple faith given to us by the apostles. <laughs> How can that be? Lots of people go to church and say, I had an experience. And they don't know Christ. When traditions become the avenue by which God is accessed, replacing direct access. This is when I'm back to the person saying, well, I grew up a Methodist. Well, good for you. Have you ever met Jesus? Well, I grew up a Baptist. So? Big deal. <laughs> I don't care. Did you ever meet Jesus? How dare those people always condemning our religious system. I'm not condemning your system. I'm just saying, meet Jesus and let him blow it apart and then I won't touch it. When tradition replaces individual participation in making and being a disciple. I'm not talking to the Catholics and the Lutherans. I'm not picking on them. I'm picking on us, our culture. Go to church and you never feel it's your responsibility to help anyone be saved. How many of you ever feel like it's your responsibility to help other people be saved? Some of you will go, yes. I don't want to show hands. But many of you, even though you know that's the right answer, you never feel that responsibility. You never feel responsible to help another Christian when they're off in sin. You never feel the need to teach someone who has potential. You never feel that. Never. And then when someone says, are you a Christian? I'm a born-again Christian. Always vote Republican and I go to Harvest Community Church. Church becomes a wineskin when we say just do it this way. And trust me, I, I don't think harvest is in wineskin material yet. But not because we're brilliant. It's because we're only a 21-year-old church. <laughs> it could happen. You become an old wineskin. So what, must, what should we do then? And this is for us. I'm saying it generally, but... I think it's for us, especially our leaders. Church leaders must be willing to risk, to change, and be committed to continuous improvement. I know we always do it that way. We could do it better. I know we do that every year. Let's not do Christmas candlelighting this year. Now, by the way, we're going to probably do Christmas candlelighting this year. So don't kill me. But it doesn't mean we have to do it. And maybe a time comes when it's not effective. Well, you got to do it. Churches do it on Christmas Eve. you got to do it. I grew up going to church on Easter and Christmas. And then, well, I don't care. How come your disciples fast is all, you're, all I hear you say? Your disciples don't fast. We do. If your leaders stop taking risks, good risks, not stupid ones. And if you as a congregation won't do the same and won't go with them. Yeah, a lot of pastors just are chewed up and spit out. The repetitive process of the church must be constantly reevaluated for effectiveness in helping the flock grow in worship. Finally, the home must be used as a tool for ministry. Why? Because a healthy home is the best model of how the church should go about it. Because a healthy home has Christ as its center. But it always remains culturally in tune because it bears young people who grow up and say, Dad, that's stupid. And why do we have carpet from the 70s, the wife says. 
You go in the church, they go, don't touch those my grandfather put his name on it when we put it in there in the 30s. Problem there, not in the home. We should meet in homes. Holy place. Young adults need room to lead in this gathered church because they don't think like me. Now, when I make fun of them, I just say they're dumb. But when I'm being honest, they just are more in tune with cultural changes than I am. They need their room. They need their room. Let me finish because I'm out of time. Religious system. Trust me, this system matters. Sunday school workers will kill me. We must take advantage of the portable nature of our faith. All it takes to take the faith to anywhere in the world, locally or to the other side of the world, is a human and a Bible. That's it. No religious stuff. Human and a Bible. We should always be doing that. And finally, we must remember that at its heart, our faith is about fun and enjoyment and pleasure in the groom. It's not about rule keeping. It's about just getting all hopped up on the groom. (laughs) It's just about that. And there ain't no sin to be glad that you know Jesus. Our joy is not in the ritual. It's in the groom. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.